You're listening to Cross Section, the podcast of the Summit View Church of Christ. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord Every person has sin. And we all bear the consequences of our sin. Broken relationships, shame, guilt, and so on. Some of those consequences endure even after we repent and make things right with God. You know, you apologize to God, He forgives you, but you still, still have to deal with what happened. And so it sure is good to know that even as we bear those consequences, God does not leave us. He works to restore us, to bring us back to Himself and to hope. The theological center of our text this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 25. We're going to look at a story that covers several chapters in 2 Samuel, along with one of the Psalms that David wrote. But the center of our text is this one verse, 2 Samuel 15, 25. David is fleeing for his life, fleeing from Jerusalem, and the priests begin to bring the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the symbol of God's presence, with David. But David tells them, take the ark back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. He will bring me back. If God is pleased with me, if he looks into my heart and deems my repentance and my love for him to be genuine, then even though I've sinned, he will bring me back. It's a perspective that we all need, that when the consequences of our sin come upon us, we can trust God to see into our hearts and make a right judgment and bring us back into his grace and love. Here's what was happening at this time in David's life. As we read last week, David had sinned and sinned terribly. He saw a beautiful woman one night. He desired her. Found out she was married. That didn't stop him. As king, he ordered that she be brought to him, and then he did with her as he wished. Terrible sin. That sin led to more. He found out that he had made her pregnant, and then he tried to hide what he'd done by making it look like the child was her husband's child, but that didn't work. And so he had her husband killed. So that then he could marry her and everybody would think that the child was his. No one would ever know that he had taken this other man's wife. Terrible sin. But of course, God knew what he had done. And so through the prophet Nathan, God foretold that David's sin would carry heavy consequences in two ways. Nathan foretold that what David had done to that man's wife, someone else would do to his wife's. And as David had struck down that man with the sword, so the sword would never leave David's own house, his family. Now, the good news is, David repented. That's vital. He hated what he had done, and God forgave him. God can always work with the person whose heart is soft and who wants to do what's right. David's repentance was sincere. But David had several sons, And his two oldest copied their father's sin. 
One would wish that they had learned from his repentance, but instead they imitated his sin. David's oldest son, Amnon, comes up in 2 Samuel chapter 13. Amnon became infatuated with his half-sister, Tamar, a beautiful young woman. David was their father, but they had different mothers. David had several wives. Polygamy in the Bible never turns out well. Amnon worked out a scheme to get alone with Tamar. And then he did to her what David had done with Bathsheba. As David had used his power to take what he wanted, so Amnon used his power to take what he wanted. Isn't that what rulers are supposed to do? Of course, it ruined Tamar's life. From then on, in their culture, since she was no longer a virgin, she was considered damaged goods. She was probably never able to marry. From that day on, she lived in shame because of her brother, Amnon. David's second oldest son was Absalom. Absalom was Tamar's full brother, same father, same mother. Apparently, Absalom loved his sister. Later on, he names his daughter after her. Absalom finds out what Amnon has done. And Scripture says in 2 Samuel 13, verse 20, Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. David, you'll notice, is furious when he hears what happened. But he doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't address the sin and the crime that's been committed. He does not hold Amnon accountable for what he's done. Meanwhile, Absalom comforts his sister, gives her a place to live, and then he keeps quiet. He bides his time. And thinking about David, I can't help but wonder whether the reason David doesn't punish his son Amnon is because he recognizes that Amnon simply did what his father before him had done. He saw, he desired, he had the power, so he took. And perhaps David is still so overwhelmed with shame because of his own sin that even as king, he cannot discipline his son for what he did to his sister. But when David fails to hold Amnon accountable, Absalom does. He does it for him. Absalom waits two years, and then when he has the opportunity, he orders his own men to murder Amnon. And then he flees flees from Israel, goes to the protection of the king of Geshur, a nearby country where his mother's father is. So he's going to grandpa's country to hide. 2 Samuel 13, verse 37 says, Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned many days for his son. 
After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. It's a rough story. David's oldest son violates David's daughter. David does nothing about it. So his second son steps in, murders the first son in vengeance for his sister. And David mourns for the dead son, but then also over the next three years, he he grieves, yearning for reconciliation with the son who did the killing. But, of course, with the crime Absalom has committed, David has no good way to bring him home. Eventually, a wise woman reminds David in 2 Samuel 14, verse 14, that, as she says it, God devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. David listens to her. He knows she's right because God has worked to bring David himself back to God and not leave him banished after his sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. So David listens to the woman, and he lets Absalom come home. Seems like what God would do too. God reconciles sinners back to himself. But David never really addresses the problem of Absalom's murder of his brother. David probably still can't shake the memory of Nathan's prophecy that because David had used the sword against Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, the sword would never leave David's house. Amnon's death has fulfilled that prophecy, and it must seem like, at least in part, it's David's own fault. But then things get worse. Absalom spends the next four years gathering the support of the Israelites. We're coming upon election season here in our country. Uh, November, got a big election coming up. And you know how politicians become really good at making people like them when it's almost election time? Well, Absalom was a master at that. He treated people as, the, the, the common people, as his equals. And he made himself looked strong, drove around in a chariot with 50 men running out in front of him. And he told the people that the king would not hear their complaints, but if he himself were made judge in the land, that he would listen to everybody. And when he thought he had enough support, Absalom had himself declared king. We're in chapter 15 now, verse 10. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or, we will be, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. 
The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So Absalom has had himself declared king. He has strong support among the people of Israel. He is making his move. And David realizes he has to flee immediately or Absalom and all the men supporting him are going to storm Jerusalem and kill David and destroy the city. And so skipping down to verse 23. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley. And all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Zadok was there too, and all the Levites who were with him carrying, uh, were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, and here's that verse that we started with, the theological center of our text today. The king said to Zadok, Take the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son Ahimeaz with you and also Abiathar's son Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. So David and his household, his officials, all the men who support him, are evacuating Jerusalem. And as they're leaving, the priest Zadok and the Levites bring the Ark of the Covenant with them. That's that sacred box that has the tablet of the Ten Commandments and, and the law of God inside it. And they bring it as a sort of prayer for God to protect David, a sign of, of God's divine um, uh, protection of, of David. But David says, no, take the Ark of God back into the city. Let it stay there. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and see his dwelling place again. And if I don't find favor in the Lord's eyes, then I'm ready. Let God do to me whatever seems good to him. What does David mean by this? He means that he recognizes he can only be king of Israel if God permits it. That ultimately, in Israel, it's God, not any man, who is the king. God is the true ruler. And David knows he has sinned badly against God. At this point, it's been years ago. But he has not forgotten what he's done. He's repented of it, but he remembers it. The shame carries with him. He set a terrible example for his sons, and now they've done evil, and he failed to discipline them for that evil. And if God wants to remove David from the throne then God is entirely justified in doing so. So David will not presume upon God's favor and take the Ark of the Covenant with him. He will leave it to God to judge him and to bring him back to Jerusalem and to the Ark if God sees fit. David's sin still haunts him even after all these years. So David will flee for his life. 
He will fight for the throne. He sends the priests back to Jerusalem and even asks them and their sons to spy for him there and send word about Absalom's plans. But he continues to carry that guilt and shame because of his sin. And he ultimately has to leave it to God to decide if he's worthy to continue to be king. All because of one bad decision that he made one night. And then some other bad decisions that came after it. And the sin that he committed. You know, one bad decision can leave consequences that last a long time. A friend of mine the other day told me about a young man, maybe 20 years old or so. He was here in Yakima. He was at home playing video games. And he, he just decided to run to the store and grab a snack. No problem there, right? He could have walked to the store. Uh, that would have been smart. But instead, he took his mother's car, the one that she had forbidden him to drive because he had no insurance. He took her car. He ran a stop sign. He made an illegal left turn right in front of my friend, there was a collision. My friend was fine. Her car was easily repaired. I think he was fine as well, but his mother's car was totaled. He was arrested on three or four different charges. So there was something more going on there that I, I can't remember from the story. But he, was, he was arrested, and when he was taken to court, he pleaded innocent but was found guilty. And then he appealed his case, and my friend had to testify in court again this past week. And it was a bad move on this young man's part to take the car, to drive badly, uh, to, to um, plead innocent when he was guilty, and to appeal when he's still guilty. Because in all of this, he's just making a situation worse. And that young man is going to be suffering the consequences of that one bad decision and series of bad decisions for a long time. He is probably going to spend some time in jail. I think he already has. And I don't know what it's going to take to repair his relationship with his mother. Maybe a brand new car would help. Let me ask you. Don't you have one or two bad decisions that had led you into sin, maybe recently, maybe years ago, and the consequences still haunt you today. And if, if you have something like that in your past, you are not alone. David and most of us are there with you. And you repented. You, you, you hate what you, you regret what you did, but you see the after effects of your sin, maybe in your family, maybe in suffering that still continues, and it's hard to bear. And the only thing you can do is cry out to God, Lord, there's nothing I can do. You can't undo your past sin. It's, it's done. God alone can lift you up when you're bent or crushed under the weight of the consequences of past sin. And so we say with David, as if we were speaking to God, calling out in desperate hope, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back. He will bring me back. When we've sinned and we're guilty and shame overwhelms us, we're helpless. And the only hope we have left at that moment is our hope in the gentleness and faithfulness of God, that he and his grace will look at our hearts, see that we long to do what is right, see that we regret what we've done and that we desperately need a second chance, 
And then he might have mercy on us and help us again, bring us back. David, evacuating from Jerusalem, fled into the wilderness and headed north. Absalom was coming into Jerusalem from the south. Along the way, as David was, was moving as quickly as he and the whole family as officials and everyone could go, some people brought supplies to David and the men and the families that were loyal to him. David and those who went with him had become refugees. And as we've seen in the, the stories of uh, the conflict in Ukraine, you know, refugees can only survive if others have pity on them and help them. And some did help David. Other people opposed David along the way. One man in particular, a man from the clan of the previous king, Saul, stood up on the hillside above the road David was traveling on. And as David traveled, he paralleled him, throwing stones and dirt and insults at the king. David graciously let him live. He says in 2 Samuel 16, verses 11 and 12, Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. David saw what this man was doing to him as a sort of penance that he had to pay for his own sin and, and crime. And so he was ready to bear all the consequences of that past sin, even if it meant being cursed by this good-for-nothing man who dared to insult the king in his moment of weakness. And at the same time, David looked to God in the hope of receiving mercy. Meanwhile, Absalom came into Jerusalem. He got busy replacing his father as king. In Jerusalem, he decided to show his strength, and he did it by taking the ten concubines David had left there at the palace and sleeping with them out in the open. And thus, he probably unknowingly fulfilled Nathan's prophecy that what David had done with Bathsheba in secret, another man would do with David's wives in front of everyone. Just horrible. Those priests who had stayed in Jerusalem and were spying for David reported to him that Absalom was gathering a massive army to attack and kill David. He was out for the death of his own father so he could have the throne to himself. So David received that message. He knew what to do. He crossed the Jordan River and prepared his troops there. Around this time, he wrote Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is introduced with these words. A Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. So it's somewhere in this mix of events that David writes Psalm 3. And here's what he wrote. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. 
Now, David has a lot of psalms like this in the book of Psalms, uh, prayers for deliverance. This is a pretty standard one. Usually goes something like, my enemies are so strong, Lord. Save me, Lord. Only you can rescue me, and I can rest. I will survive because God will save me. Standard psalm of deliverance, asking God for deliverance. But once you know the backstory, you hear another message in this psalm too. God, I do not deserve for you to help me because I too have sinned. Yet I call out to you. David doesn't deserve God's help. But then who does? Even so, David can turn to the Lord for help. Where else could any of us go? God knows all our sin. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He knows all the consequences of our sin. Yet, as that wise woman told David, God devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. He brings people back. And we may have to face heavy, heavy consequences for the evil we've done. But if we've turned back to God, he never abandons us to face those consequences alone. He always walks through them with us to help us bear up under them. He never, ever leaves us alone. And that's why David could pray in verse 5, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. Even when we must bear the consequences of our sin, we have hope. The Lord is still with us as we turn to him. The story of Absalom's attempted coup does not have an entirely happy ending. The battle does turn out well for David's side. 2 Samuel 18, now in verse 6. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel. And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. Funny moment, but not a funny day. Hard day for Israel. 20,000 capable men died. And as for Absalom, an arrogant man, a violent man, it was a shameful ending. Head stuck in a tree as his mule continues off without him. Some of David's men found Absalom there, and the commander of David's army killed him. It was a humiliating day, a humiliating end for a man who had tried to exalt himself to the throne. But for David, what happened to Absalom was absolutely crushing. When he heard that Absalom was dead, he was overwhelmed. Chapter 18, verse 33 says, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he wept, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, 
those consequences just get heavier. No wonder David was in anguish. He must have felt like his sin was at the root of what happened first to Amnon and now to Absalom. But as all parents of children who have grown learn, our children make their own decisions in life. Amnon and Absalom could have made the choice to not do the evil that they did, to learn from their father's repentance instead of from his sin. That's not how they chose. Their sin was their own. So all the blame is not on David. He had done evil, but then he had done everything he could to make things right with God, yet those consequences had persisted. But our God is a forgiving God to those who seek him. And God vindicated David in the end. Absalom, who, you know, just looking at his arrogance, would have made a terrible king for Israel. He was defeated. And God brought David healing in time. David had said, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back. And God did bring David back to Jerusalem and back to the Ark of the Covenant there. David retakes the throne of Israel Later, David would design the first temple of God in Jerusalem where the ark would be kept for centuries. That man who had thrown stones and dirt and insults at David as he was fleeing from Absalom, that man came back and apologized to David and begged for his life. And again, David graciously let him live. There was another short-lived rebellion against David, but it was quickly squelched. And God restored David's reign and blessed him again. Some years later, one of David's sons, Solomon, fittingly the son of Bathsheba, becomes king after David. And David lives long enough to see his son take the throne with his father's support before David dies. And I share this complex, anguished story today to remind us that though we bear the guilt and shame of our past sins, though in some cases we might need to bear the consequences of our sin for a long time, God never leaves us in our guilt and shame. But he devises ways so that a person who's been banished from him does not remain banished from him. He finds ways to restore us to himself and to bring us his direction, and his hope again. He brings us back. This, of course, is the story of Jesus and what he's done for us. That he took our, he, he took our sin upon himself when he died on the cross, just like in the song Jerry led a few minutes ago. Those sins are nailed to the cross. And Jesus took our sin, not so that we could skip all the consequences of our sin, get out of jail free card, just make it easy for us, but so that the greatest consequence of our sin, which is our separation from God, could be undone. And so that whatever we face in life, God is with us and faces it with us and helps us and encourages us and gives us hope. He brings us back. And I pray that as you seek him, that he will do this for you. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray together to you and ask you to bless your church today, here in this place and with us online, those who will be hearing this lesson later. We pray, dear God, 
that as we go through life and face the difficulty of bearing the consequences of sin we've committed in the past or sin that we might commit in days yet to come, that we pray, Lord, that you, would, uh, that you would guide us never to sin against you. Lord, when we bear those consequences, we beg you to stand with us and to help us as you helped David. It was so hard for him and so hard for us some days. Yet you are gracious and kind. And though you do not remove all the consequences of our sin, you walk with us through them and you help us bear up under them. We thank you. We thank you for Jesus, our Lord, who took for us the greatest and worst consequence of all uh, for sin and who brought us uh, forgiveness so that we don't have to be separated from you, our God and our creator. Lord, as you walk with us this week, would you guide us in your ways? Would you help us to do what's right? If we have to bear difficulty because of sin that we've committed in the past, walk with us through that and help us, Lord. And we pray, dear God, as David asked, that you would bring us back, back to your full grace, back to uh, courage and peace and strength again, back to joy in your presence. And we know you will, dear God, because you gave us your own son. Bless your church today and this week, O oh God. We look to you and we pray to you in the name of Jesus, our Lord. 